Hello, my Rebels. Today, I take you through a study from Harvard, all of all places, that shows how the poorest of the poor, the, the working poor, the true blue-collar class, has fared under the lockdowns compared to how the wealthiest have fared. You won't be surprised, I don't think. The lockdown has been very good to some people and very bad for others. That's ahead. Before I get to that, let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's the video version of this podcast. It lets you see all the work we put into the visual elements, including in this case, lots of very interesting charts and graphs. It's only eight bucks a month. Go to rebelnews.com, click subscribe. You get the video stuff. You get Sheila's show, David's show, Andrew's show. And you get the satisfaction of supporting Rebel News and knowing that it's because of you that we're alive. We'll never take a dime from Trudeau. Just go to rebelnews.com. All right, here's today's show. Tonight, a Harvard study compares how badly the lockdown has hit the richest people versus the poorest. It's June 21st, and this is The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. I'm going to show you a study on who's losing under the lockdowns and who's winning. It's a Harvard study, not exactly a group of wild-eyed right-wingers. It's heartbreaking. You know, it's June 21st today, the summer solstice, the longest day of the year in the Northern Hemisphere. Not quite the middle of the calendar year, but pretty close. So yeah, we're pretty much at a year and a half of our lives being consumed by the pandemic panic. Not by the pandemic itself, mind you. Uh, Here's Teresa Tam's page on the Government of Canada website. Look at figure 1B, selecting for the moving average of deaths per seven days prior. So it's a weekly count. You can see a bunch of graphs under that for each province. Canada had a wave of deaths right near the beginning uh, in April 2020. Then another wave over Christmas, the flu season. Slowly scroll down province by province. Most places haven't really had an issue in months, really a year. The other day I showed you the Statistics Canada report that said the excess deaths in Canada in 2020 were for seniors dying from COVID in the spring of 2020. But by the time the end of the year came around, the excess deaths, that is more deaths than were expected, were amongst young people, drug overdoses and suicides. It's not from a coronavirus. That's from abusive politicians who are much deadlier. You know, every day we hear a new way to terrify us, this new variant or that new variant or a new mutation, whatever. It's like they have a thesaurus that they keep going to to be scary, to explain why they aren't keeping their earlier promise to end the lockdown on whatever day they're promising now. Even today, both Ontario and Alberta have their roadmap out of the lockdown. Both provinces have already exceeded the conditions that the politicians themselves set for being let out of the lockdowns already. As in, the politicians promised it was only until certain counts, like the hospitalizations or whatever, were under control. Well, they are, but the lockdowns haven't been lifted. Oh, I'm shocked. Today was literally called Freedom Day in the United Kingdom. It was going to be the day that the last of the lockdowns were lifted. The UK is pretty much back to normal. I mean, they have a huge soccer games, thousands of fans in the street. Everyone's acting like it's life back to normal because it is. 
Here's the UK stats. Look at deaths within 28 days of positive tests by date of death. Those are, for the UK, a country of nearly 70 million people. Some days there's only five people in the whole country who die from the virus, or to be more precise, die and happen to have a positive COVID test in the previous month. As in Canada, the average age of death is around 80. The average victim died with multiple serious other diseases. COVID is pretty much over in the UK, and I wouldn't even blame them for the counts there. I mean, if you have three or four comorbidities, did you really die from COVID? But not for the politicians. It's not over for them. It's just too good to give up. It's been too much excitement, too much of a safe emergency. By that, I mean not a real emergency. The UK's had emergencies before. They had a real war. This is not a real war. This is not a real crisis anymore, at least. There are those crises in the world that are real wars, an earthquake, a tsunami, whatever. Uh, but for this COVID panic, it's all upside for a crisis for those in authority. Spend money, borrow money, pass regulations without parliament, total media obedience, police powers against any dissidents, all the upside for a politician without, you know, the actual Luftwaffe coming to bomb London. So yeah, Freedom Day is postponed. Of course it was. Same here in Canada. It's going to get worse. It's over. But here come the vaccine passports. There are nine new pharma billionaires since the pandemic began. You can imagine the lengths they will go to keep the gravy train coming. Same with the next nine men who think they ought to be pharma billionaires because of it too. They're not done yet. But it's not just the ultra-rich, the Jeff Bezoses of the world. Look at this study from Harvard. Take a look at this. Uh, I came across it in an article from the Foundation for Economic Education. New Harvard data accidentally reveal how lockdowns crush the working class while leaving elites unscathed. That's a good headline, but I want to make sure you know they're not talking about the billionaire class when they say elites. They're just talking about sort of average well-to-do, the professional class, upper middle class kind of thing, not zillionaires, not one percenters. Let me read a bit. A new data analysis from Harvard University, Brown University, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation calculates how different employment levels have been impacted during the pandemic to date. The findings reveal that government lockdown orders devastated workers at the bottom of the financial food chain, but left the upper tier actually better off. The analysis examined employment levels in January 2020, before the coronavirus spread widely, and before lockdown orders and other restrictions on the economy were implemented. It compared them to employment figures from March 31st, 2021. The picture painted by this comparison is one of working class destruction. So this is Harvard and Bill and Melinda Gates, for heaven's sakes. But here's what they found. Employment for lower wage workers defined as earning less than $27,000 annually declined by a whopping 23.6% over the time period. Employment for middle wage workers defined as earning from $27,000 to $60,000 a year declined by a modest 4.5%. However, employment for high wage workers defined as earning more than $60,000 a year actually increased 2.4% over the measured time period despite the country's economic turmoil. So that's a summary of it. Here's the study itself. This is the Harvard website, tracktherecovery.org. Look at the graph on the left. Recession has nearly ended for high-wage workers, but job losses persist for low-wage workers. While employment rates have rebounded to pre-COVID-19 levels for high-wage workers, they remain significantly lower for low-wage workers. And you can see the graphs. More than 60 grand a year, so we're not even talking about one percenters here. 
there's a boom on for those folks. They're fine now. Bad year, but they're through it and back to normal. That's the green graph. It's actually up a little bit, 2.4%. But what about the poor folks making less than 27 grand a year? Those jobs are slaughtered. We're talking Great Depression stuff. Number of working class jobs down 24%. Makes sense. If you're a lawyer, you just work from home. If you're a government sector union, you probably didn't even work for the first six months, but you still got paid. If you're a politician, well, in Canada, our MPs and senators gave themselves two raises last April and this April. So you're loving life. Government has grown this past year, in case you didn't notice. But if you're a waiter, a waitress, a bartender, a retail shop clerk, a mom and pop shop of any sort, a barber, a hairstylist, tough luck. Now, this is an American study, but really it's the same in Canada, but worse, I would imagine, since our lockdowns up here are worse than any in America. Seriously, the lightest Canadian lockdown is heavier than the heaviest American lockdown. Let me show you the graph on the right here. Low income employment down in affluent areas. Declines in high income spending led to significant employment losses among low income individuals working in the most affluent zip codes in the country, as shown in the map below of employment declines in early June in New York City. That's another way of saying if you're in the service sector, a helper-outer, an odd jobber, tough luck for you. Landscaping, construction, housekeeping, do your work by Zoom. Yeah, no, it doesn't work that way. Now, if you click the button that says explore the data, you can see some more details. On the right, the three graph lines. You can see middle-class jobs that are still down 4.5%. And what's worrying is that those trends are still declining in 2021. It's actually getting worse in America. And look at the left, a little image showing all 50 states. Hover the mouse over some of them. California, the biggest state in the union, one of the worst lockdowns. Look at that, down 38.3% in working class employment. How is that even possible? More than one in three working class jobs is gone. Still gone. In Massachusetts, it's 51%. More than half the working class jobs in that state are gone. Texas is down a bit. Florida is actually growing. And you know what's making all this worse? That is, if, if you're a low-income, blue-collar worker? Open borders. Under Biden, hundreds of thousands of low-skill, off-the-books workers are streaming in from Mexico. It's because Biden and Kamala Harris have just opened up the southern border, just stopped building Trump's wall, stopped enforcing the law. Here in Canada, we don't overwhelm our low-income workers with illegal migrants. I mean, Roxham Road is still open, but it's not hundreds of thousands through there. No, we invite in low-skill, low-income competitors legally. Seriously, record immigration numbers planned in the middle of the Great Depression. Record numbers and record numbers of low-skill or no-skill workers to drive down the cheapest wages. Housing prices in Canada have never been higher. Well, let's add a million people to that. Inflation is back. Unemployment is still high. It's been devastating for the working class. And here come a million new migrants. And you're a racist if you object to those economics. Yeah, it's not the virus I'm scared of. Well, for those of you old enough to remember the Brady Bunch, you'll remember there was a refrain, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Well, during the Trump administration, it was Russia, Russia, Russia. Everything was proof that Russia helped steal the election in 2016 for Donald Trump. It was a cockamamie theory. There was no one more capitalist 
than Donald Trump. He's no commie. In fact, it was Bernie Sanders that took his honeymoon in the Soviet Union when it was still under communist rule. But it was such a uh, hot meme in the media that it actually became a multi-year, multi-tens of millions of dollars investigation by Robert Mueller, who in the end found no proof of collusion whatsoever. Well, Joe Biden has been president for not even six months. How has he done with Russia? Has he been tougher with Vladimir Putin? Or has he done what the media alleged Donald Trump did? Give things away to Russia? Well, let me show you a headline. uh, You know, I've just got a couple of stories in front of me here. Just incredible. This is a story from Joel Pollack in Breitbart.com. I'll just read one headline. Joe Biden got nothing in Geneva summit with Russia's Vladimir Putin. I just want to read the first sentence or two, and then we'll bring Joel in. President Joe Biden gave Russian President Vladimir Putin almost everything he could have wanted at their summit. And the degree to which the summit was a disaster became evident when Putin emerged for his press conference alone with a forum all to himself. Joe Biden did not want to be seen on a platform with Putin, lest the relative strength and mental acuity between the two became too easy to compare. Joining us now is the author of these two items, our friend Joel Pollack, senior editor-at-large at Breitbart.com. Joel, I tell you, I want to jump right into these stories. There's so many terrible anecdotes and vignettes canceling $100 million in aid to Ukraine, uh, approving Russia's Nord Stream pipeline. Everything the Democrats said Trump was bad at for Russia, Biden just did it. Right. It's amazing how Democrats just don't seem to care about appeasement with Russia when they're the ones allegedly doing it. I don't think Donald Trump appeased Russia at all. I think Trump was very tough on Russia. He tried to block the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. The U.S. forces in Syria wiped out Russian mercenaries there. He also interfered with Russia's alliance with Iran and other troublesome countries. And he slapped more sanctions on Russian officials than had ever been done before. So, This idea that Democrats had that Trump was somehow a puppet of Putin had nothing to do with reality and everything to do with their excuses for losing the 2016 election. Anytime Trump was simply cordial to Vladimir Putin, the Democrats portrayed it as some betrayal of national security. Yet not only was Joe Biden more than cordial to Putin in their summit in Geneva last week, he gave him an entire summit. I mean, the G7, that's just seven leaders from a bunch of other nations. But Putin got a very special meeting all to himself, and he got it before Biden met with the president of Ukraine. And so Biden elevated Putin even before he arrived in Geneva. When he left Geneva, he had nothing to show for it. All he really had was the Russians allowing the U.S. ambassador back to Moscow. Well, big deal. I mean, it wasn't as if we kicked out the Russian ambassador. The Russians withdrew their ambassador several months ago. So that is now restored, okay, for whatever whatever that's worth. What Putin has been able to do is to get a five-year extension of the New START Treaty, which is a one-sided treaty of disarmament favoring Russia. He just asked for one year. Biden gave him five. Russia also gets the Nord Stream 2 pipeline supplying natural gas to Europe, which not only makes Europe dependent on Russia, but also circumvents Ukraine. Ukrainians were the conduit for a lot of the natural gas going to Europe. Now they are going to be cut out of the picture, so they lose leverage and they lose billions of dollars in revenue. Plus, you add to that the fact that Biden is allowing Russia to cooperate with Iran, to protect all sorts of bad actors at the UN and in other places. And Biden is actually appeasing the Russians. 
while lifting sanctions on Russian officials and playing footsie with Putin in Geneva. So this is really astonishing how the media and the Democrats have decided that all of a sudden, it doesn't matter how nice we are to Russia. Russia doesn't really matter. And isn't it wonderful? In fact, CNN was talking about how fantastic it is that Biden was cordial to Putin. If Trump was cordial to Putin, they accused him of treason. You know, uh, I'm looking through your articles, looking at all the things America gave away, and as you say, even more than was demanded. It reminds me of how much of a deal maker and a negotiator Donald Trump was. I mean, I can't think of any tougher industry and place in the world than cutthroat New York State property development, whether it's dealing with, I don't know, mafia in the construction unions or crooked, uh, you know, state and city regulators, or just tough competitors, financial vagaries. There is no tougher business. And you've got to be extremely sharp. As the late Izzy Asper used to say, our Canadian nickel has a, has a little beaver on it. You know, you've got to shave the beaver off a nickel. You've got to be so, you've got to watch every single penny. If you can survive in New York real estate, you can survive anywhere. Joe Biden has never been in a real negotiation like that against a real enemy in a zero-sum game. So he goes over there and he just gives things away. I don't think he's ever, I can't think of anything he's ever negotiated, any deal he's ever done, any person he's ever stared down. I just don't think he has that skill set. And, and the people around him are people who gave it all away under the Obama administration to Iran, for example. I, I just think this is the... We feel the lack of Trump more than ever in these foreign affairs matters. You're right that Biden doesn't have the skill set for that kind of tough negotiation. The U.S. Senate is a place where Democrats and Republicans come together to agree to fleece the American taxpayer. It's very easy to negotiate deals when your own interests aren't directly at stake. Biden doesn't have the skill set to stand up in a tough negotiation nor does he really represent the American people. I mean, yes, of course he does. He's our Democratic leader. He's supposed to represent our interests. But Democrats, including Biden, have for decades often sought accommodations with our enemies. They often view America as the problem. They apologize for us. They feel sad that we have become involved in so many conflicts. It's a nature of our system. It's part of our systemic racism, perhaps, or our arrogance or something. But they are eager to reach an accommodation with countries that don't like us. And that's why he returned from Europe triumphant in, in his own mind, because he proclaimed diplomacy is back. Yeah. Of course, Trump was very good at diplomacy. Trump was probably the least war prone of our recent presidents. But with Trump, diplomacy meant standing up for American interest in a very serious way. With Biden, diplomacy means going along to get along. And he was very pleased that the Europeans liked him and they have a very favorable opinion of him. If you look at the opinion polls, there's been this dramatic turnaround in European views of the United States since Biden took over. It's very much a reflection of our media rather than reality. And I was told yesterday that quietly the European governments are quite troubled by the Biden administration's stance because it is one of appeasement on every front. We were told, for example, he was going to go to Europe and get the European leaders and the G7 to agree on tough action against China. Well, that didn't happen. I mean, Biden is not about defending American interests or the West. He's about reaching an accommodation with those who challenge us in the hope that we won't offend them too badly. And then he can come home and talk about diplomacy, sort of like Neville Chamberlain returning with a piece of paper. I mean, diplomacy is fine. Anyone can use diplomacy. What do you use that diplomacy to achieve? Trump achieved things like the US-Mexico-Canada agreement, and he did it by 
being tough on our trade partners. Trump achieved things like the Abraham Accords, and he did it by standing firmly with American allies, particularly with Israel. What's Biden doing? Biden's basically giving away the store. He comes home and talks about diplomacy because they slapped each other on the back in public, at least when they weren't obeying social distancing rules. But there's no real achievement to his diplomacy. So it's not only does he lack the skill set, but he's not even really representing our interests. Yeah. And you mentioned that um, the, the foreign opinion likes Biden. Now, it's always bizarre when foreign opinion is reported back to Americans as if uh, that is somehow more important than American opinion about who the American is. I mean, yeah, I suppose every country wants their country to be liked. But I think the purpose of an American president is to do the bidding of Americans like the purpose of a Canadian prime minister is. I mean, we've lost that a long time ago with the depart- with the, under Justin Trudeau. But I think put aside the media love for Biden, which is so obviously a factor, um, I think Europeans like to deal, any country likes to deal with a weak American president if, that, if that's a change from, let's say, Donald Trump demanding that NATO countries spend more on military. One of the constant refrains from Trump was that America's allies should pay their own defense bills. And every time he went to NATO, he would really publicly shame them. He shamed Trudeau. It was, a, it was a wonderful. He, on the spot, in a live joint presser, he asked Trudeau how much Trudeau was spending on NATO, and he knew the numbers, and Trudeau didn't. Here, here's a quick flashback to that. Should it does not meet the 2% standard. Should it have a plan to meet the 2% standard? Well, we'll put them on a payment plan, you know? We'll put Canada on a payment plan, right? I'm sure the prime minister would love that. What are you at? What, what is your number? Uh, the number we talk about is 70% increase uh, over these uh, past years, uh, including, and for the coming years, uh, including uh, re- significant investments in our fighter jets, significant investments in our naval fleets. Uh, we are increasing significantly our defense spending from previous governments that cut it. Okay. Where are you now uh, in terms of your number? We're at 135. One point three. One four. One four. And and They're continuing getting, to move They're forward. getting there. They they know it's important to do that. So I think when you've got a pushover like Biden who never asks for anything, who never embarrasses them, of course they're going to like him more. But I believe what you're saying, that they're a little worried while they may be let off the hook for some bilateral thing. Uh, who's on guard for the free West? Who's going to challenge China? That's exactly right. And China, meanwhile, is advancing on every front. They have things that the rest of the West wants. They have markets, they have money, and they have control. The irony is they don't really have control when you look at the problems they're wrestling with. They've got a huge coronavirus problem that's still raging over there. They've got environmental damage and devastation. They've got a rising middle class that has aspirations that the Communist Party may not be able to fulfill. And they're encountering increasing challenges. But instead of looking at China in that critical way and seeing where can we make an impact so that our values line up with our foreign policies so that we can encourage freedom in China and so that we can defeat China in the race for global domination. I mean, China envisions a world that serves its own interests. It doesn't serve anyone else's interests. And already they're exercising their will over our freedom of speech here at home. They're stealing our intellectual property. They've cornered the market on rare earth minerals. They're changing the way we live. They have an effect over our lives, which we don't really want. We don't do that to other nations. I mean, the United States has never really sought dominion over other countries. It's sought to create 
what Biden calls the international rules-based order. Well, if Biden cares about it, he has to defend it. But he's not doing that. He's basically seeking an accommodation with China. And he's unleashed this hapless crew of career diplomats who've achieved nothing except weak deals like the Iran nuclear deal and a North Korea deal that allowed the Kim regime to go nuclear. They don't know what they're doing, and they make the same mistakes over and over again, and they never seem to learn. But, you know, the Trudeau example is interesting. I mean, Canada is in a very bad situation relative to the United States with regard to coronavirus. The Democrats often look to Canada as a model for what they want to do domestically in the United States. And yet this problem of Canada's struggle with coronavirus and the draconian enforcement of coronavirus restrictions is something that our media doesn't want to talk about. Uh, But Trudeau's closeness to China, his inability to chart a different path, is basically the path the Democratic Party foresees for the United States. And yet we're not asking ourselves, does that model actually work? I tell you, Joel, uh, I bet your American readers would be shocked to learn so many of the weird political decisions that were made. I mean, Justin Trudeau's first vaccine move was to sign a deal with uh, a vaccine company affiliated with the Chinese People's Liberation Army. I mean, I think if your American viewers knew some of the crazy decisions made in Canada, and even the fact that today we're under a strict lockdown, two-week travel quarantine. I mean, the world's most locked down city of Toronto, according to the BBC. I mean, uh, indoor restaurants have been banned in most of Canada for most of last year. I think Americans would be shocked what's going on up here. But let me get back to China. I, I don't know. I tell you, it's just so bad up here. I wouldn't have thought we were as bad, we would be as bad as we are. Let me ask you a question about China. I follow a lot of the Chinese propaganda outlets because I want to see what they're saying, and I want to try and reverse engineer what they're thinking. There's this one outlet called Global Times. It's in English. It's on Twitter, which is banned in China itself, which tells you a lot. Global Times is saying every few hours that the shutdown of Hong Kong's leading democracy newspaper called Apple Daily is imminent. The uh, police have already arrested their editor and their publisher and have frozen their bank accounts, but they're going to formally ban this major newspaper. It It would be like Trump arresting the editor of the New York Times, seizing their bank account and shutting the New York Times down. It's that prominent newspaper. I have not seen a single statement from the Canadian government about this. Is America paying attention to that at all, to Hong Kong at all? Does anyone care? Has Biden or his his Secretary of State, Blinken, talked about it at all? They don't really talk very much about it. The American media are unconcerned about it. I listened to most of the press briefing today at the White House. I didn't hear all of it, but I didn't hear too many concerns being voiced there. I know that at Breitbart, it's something we've been following, and we covered it last week when Residents of Hong Kong stood in line for hours to buy editions of the Apple Daily to show their support for it. But we don't seem to be taking any particular interest in the freedom of Hong Kong. And it's something peculiar, but we're just not interested, uh, apparently, even though Hong Kong is certainly interested in us. I mean, even under the Trump administration, which at first tried to finesse the diplomatic situation with Hong Kong, People in Hong Kong were waving American flags as symbols of freedom, and and they're big fans of Donald Trump because they understand that Trump stands up to China and nobody else will. But, you know, we don't really have an elite in this country that stands up for freedom in Hong Kong or here. I mean, when journalists are attacked in the street here by Antifa thugs, there's no outcry. There's no one who says, hey, this is not what we should be doing in a free society. In fact, there are people who criticize him. So, I think we're at a we're we're in a situation here where press freedom is 
taken for granted or actually denigrated by those who ought to be benefiting from it. Yeah, I feel like this uh, account of Global Times is like testing the is like a stalking horse for the Communist Party, putting the idea out there like every two hours, we're going to shut it down. We're going to shut it down almost to gauge reaction to it um, to see because this is going to be a heck of a move. Like, I mean, they've arrested Democratic politicians. They've arrested editors. Now they're going to close a huge newspaper. And I think they're going to get away with it without a peep. I don't know. I know in the past Donald Trump, even if he wouldn't have actually done anything, there would have been a legitimate fear on the Chinese side that he would have done something. He might do something. Even the body language. I'll let you go, Joel, because you're so busy. But there's so much body language of... Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron getting right into Joe Biden's face, physical, like his, like getting in his face physically, pointing right near his face, touching him in a way that I know if they had done that, they would never have done it to Trump. And if they tried, Trump probably would have grabbed their hand or pushed them. Like even the physical contempt for Biden was palpable. Did you notice that? Or am I seeing things? It's hard to judge from little snippets and snapshots, but I don't think people have particular respect for Joe Biden. And I don't think he conducted himself with particular physical dominance or prominence. Donald Trump commanded a room. I think Joe Biden is lucky to survive these meetings. He tended to forget the names of leaders and and so forth. He is not entirely 100%. He's functional enough to at least appear in public as the head of the administration, but he's not really running things. And it's a group behind the scenes in the White House who are really taking care of most of the business. So they feel relieved that he returned from Europe in one piece. But I I think you're correct. I don't think the other Western leaders are feeling particularly confident in his leadership. They're glad that the pressure is off. Or as one of our local journalists said, they're glad that they're no longer traumatized by the scars of Donald Trump demanding that they live up to their commitments to pay 2% of their defense budgets uh, to NATO. But, uh, you know, they're they're comfortable around him because he's not making demands of them. But I don't think they're confident in his leadership. There was uh, one moment where uh, Biden called Putin Trump. I think that sort of showed uh, (laughs) his cognitive state. Joel, it's great to see you again. Thanks for spending so much time with us. Thank you. All right. There you have it. Joel Pollack, senior editor at large at Breitbart.com. Stay with us more. Welcome back. On Rebel News and the other litigants losing our federal court of Canada case against Trudeau's COVID airport jails, MK writes, the judge ignored all the evidence and spewed out liberal talking points as a ruling. Well, I don't think the judge ignored the evidence. I think he, as carefully as he could, tried to take a position to save the government's case. I don't think he ignored it. I think he sort of gamed it. I, I think we've got a strong case on appeal. I spoke with our lawyers again today. And we intend to appeal, and I know at least some of the other litigants intend to appeal. Now, that's not going to say we're going to win it, but we're sure not done fighting. Thor writes, it's not government's job to protect the people. It's their job to protect the people's liberties. Yeah, I mean, the whole point of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is to protect us from the state. And I don't think the courts have done that. They just haven't. Show me a case in Canada where the worst civil liberties violations ever in our country's history have been rolled back by the courts. I just haven't seen it. 
Peguin writes, necessary sacrifice. Yeah, but only sacrifices the small people, not the ruling class. Well, that's what I just showed you in the Harvard study today. This has devastated the working class. In, I couldn't even believe it. In Massachusetts, half of working class jobs just eliminated. But uh, yeah, the 350 grand a year federal court of Canada judge, he thinks we all got to keep making sacrifices. I wonder what sacrifices he's made. Well, that's the show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, see you at home. Good night and keep fighting for freedom.